Our scripture this morning is from Genesis chapter 16, verses 1 to 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, bore him no children. She had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my maid. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that he had conceived, she, when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my maid to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur, and he said, Hagar, maid of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will so greatly multiply your descendants that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are with child and shall bear a son. You should call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He shall be a wild ass of a man, his hand against every man and every man's hand against him, and he shall dwell over all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, Thou art a God of seeing. For she said, Have I really seen God and remained alive after seeing him? Therefore, the well was called Bir Lahoi Roy. It lies between Gadish and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 year old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Thank you, Phyllis. This is probably going to be a short sermon, right? This is one of those texts that's so easy to understand and uh, apply to our lives, right? It's, it's self-evident already, right? It's kind of a complicated text. There's some confusing parts to it. I want to start this morning, though, uh, by sharing a rabbinic fable that is told about Abraham. Uh, we discussed Abraham last week, and, uh, and of course, he shows up in the text this week. Uh, in the fable, it says, Abraham was sitting outside his tent one evening when he saw an old man, weary from age and journey, coming towards him. Abraham rushed out, greeted him, invited him to his tent. He washed the old man's feet and gave him food and drink. The old man immediately began eating without saying any prayer or blessing. So Abraham asked him, well, don't you worship God? The old traveler replied, I worship fire only and give reverence to no other God. When he heard this, Abraham was outraged. He grabbed the old man by the shoulders and threw him out of the tent into the cold night air. When the old man had departed, God called to his friend Abraham and asked where the stranger was. 
And Abraham replied, I forced him out because he did not worship you. God answered, I have suffered him these 80 years, although he dishonors me. You couldn't endure him for one night. This, uh, this story just shows Abraham, man of faith that he was, was not perfect. But the failure that we see in the text today is much worse even than just the failure of compassion. For context, we're continuing on in our series through Genesis. Uh, we're looking at major figures in this first book of our Bible. And today we're exploring the life of a lesser known but still very significant figure, a woman named Hagar, who was deeply wounded by both Abraham and his wife Sarah. So I want to talk first about how did we get here? It would help if this was on. It was my fault. I didn't turn it on, turn on the thing. So let's back up just a little bit. Uh, where did Hagar come from? How did Abraham and Sarah, who are nomadic shepherds from the east, even come into the possession of a slave from Egypt? Well, back in chapter 12, God had called Abraham and promised him that if he would follow the Lord, he would be led from his homeland to a promised land where his descendants would settle and would flourish so that they would be as numerous as the sands of the sea and the stars of the sky. And this people would be a blessing to all of humanity. So Abraham went. He was faithful. He believed. And the Bible tells us that God credited uh, the faith of Abraham to him as righteousness. Immediately after his uh, initial uh, call from God to, to go to Canaan, we see in that same chapter 12 that he got into the area and there was a famine. So he went on to Egypt. But he had this little problem of fearing that Pharaoh would kill him and, and take Sarah because she was so beautiful. So he fudges the truth a little bit, kind of misleads Pharaoh, uh, saying that she is his sister. And, and Pharaoh takes uh, Sarah as a concubine. And instead of killing Abraham, he gives him a bunch of gifts, including slaves like Hagar. Now, we generally accept that Moses is the primary author of Genesis. I think that's significant, because imagine the significance of Moses calling Israel's attention to this account. The blessing of God promised in Genesis 12, it would become tangible through Abraham's family in the nation of Israel, whom uh, Moses is writing to, but not before they would first end up in slavery in Egypt. Their God will hear their cry and rescue them in dramatic fashion, bringing them into the promised land. So Hagar is this kind of interesting parallel or foreshadowing of the future of Abraham's family. She is an Egyptian slave serving a family that will later be enslaved by Egyptians. She runs away from Abraham and Sarah, but willingly follows God's leading to return. The Israelites will later be brought out of slavery in Egypt, only to then whine about wanting to return to Egypt. So as Israel reads of Hagar, they may remember their own history as slaves in Egypt when they were exploited and treated harshly. When they were heard and seen by God. When they struggled and yearned for liberation. They were ultimately delivered by God from a despite Pharaoh's hard heart. So this may have then been a startling conviction for them. The read of their ancestors, Abraham and Sarah, treating Hagar this way. A sobering reminder that we are all capable of the same hard-hearted oppression that has been dealt with. 
Now, I hope that uh, this next point doesn't really need to be made, but I am going to make it explicit uh, just because, just in case, you know, anyone uh, seeing or, or just online later or anything just needs this made explicit. There have been folks in our own country's history, slaveholders and anti-abolitionists, who pointed to texts like this and this specific text as proof text for why slaves should submit to master, their masters and return back and not seek uh, liberation or freedom. That's a bad reading of this text. That is not a good reading of this text. Abraham and Sarah, first of all, by no means come off as the good guys in this text, right? And while God ultimately directs Hagar back to them, her fleeing them is not a sin. It's not a problem. Hagar is in distress as a result of their oppressive actions. And God sees her and comforts her. So readers then are drawn to empathy for Hagar, perhaps some surprise at God's instructions for her to return, an intrigue at what will happen and what will become of Hagar and her son Ishmael in the redemptive story. But Hagar is also more than just a foil for Israel to understand their identity. She's a real person with real hurt. And she's also not the only person dealing with hurt in this world. Think about Sarah and what happened to her in Egypt. Pharaoh essentially took her into his harem. And Abram, Abraham does nothing. Not necessarily because he's a coward or bad at organizing anyone to fight. Uh, and just two chapters later, there is a story about his nephew Lot being in danger, and Abraham gets together some buddies, some other people, and they go and organize this raid and save Lot. So he is capable of some of this sort of thing. Maybe you could argue Pharaoh has just got more resources on his side, and so he's afraid. But altogether, Abraham does nothing. Even though he has just received a promise that he will be the father of many nations, and Sarah is the only means he has uh, for that to come to fruition. You would think that he would care a lot by this. But Abraham does nothing but God does. God rescues Sarah. God sends plagues. Uh, and Pharaoh somehow puts two and two together. It doesn't really say explicitly how Pharaoh comes to, to understand what's happening. But he uh, sends them on their way. He, he reunites Abraham and Sarah and then just moved on. I think that this kind of highlights for us the compound nature of trauma. Because Sarah has experienced what it looks like to have agency stripped from her, to be exploited and abandoned, to lack safety or rescue. And add to that trauma the grief that she will later experience and barrenness. I mean, that is painful in its own profound ways for women today, but at that time, it also bore the added shame of this, this feeling and this understanding that God was somehow punishing this woman, uh, cursing this individual, uh, maybe for some sin in their life. We hear it in Sarah's own words in verse 2. The Lord has kept me from bearing children. That's what she says here. And then she says, so go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. I have to wonder, does she really think this is going to work? Uh, or maybe does she kind of hope that it won't? And that in some way, this will validate her that she's not the problem in the scenario. Either way, though, here, we can see her own wounding. And that in her own wounding, 
Sarah turns and exploits another woman. Maybe you've heard that saying before, hurt people hurt people. Everyone in this account have hurt. They're all acting out of that hurt in ways that hurt other people. I think that the people we identify with the most can be a bit telling of our own wounds and experiences that we bring into the text. Men may easily empathize with the plight of Abraham, that feeling of the need to help God along when promises are, are not coming to fruition, that, that uh, mission and purpose in life to be able to happen, to take care of our family, that we need to do something on our own. I mean, Abraham can be incredibly inventive and resourceful whenever it comes to saving himself or incredibly passive and hands-off when it comes to trusting God. He, he really exhibits that fight-or-flight response in times of, of uh, need and danger. Women may feel the weight of Sarah's struggle with infertility, the intersecting struggles also of Sarah and Hagar in a system that is working against them. And how do they respond? Well, Sarah has few qualms about oppressing others in the same way that she has experienced it. Hagar uses what little advantages that she gets to express contempt towards Sarah. Both continue in the cycle of hurt. A few easy-ish takeaways from this for us in application. One, we can recognize that acting out of our wounds hurts other people deeply. So maybe don't oppress and wound people out of our own wounding. Instead, we can take our wounding to God. Sense, but, but what happens when God isn't healing? What happens when God isn't bringing a breakthrough or liberation? Like for Hagar. Perhaps unsurprisingly, um, black women in the U.S. have often identified with Hagar, Hagar in this sense. She's Egyptian, African, she's a slave. Within womanist theology, the perspective that centers uh, the perspective and, and experiences of black women, there's generally two views of Hagar here. One perspective, first articulated by Dolores Williams, notes that Hagar's story shows that God is not always the God of liberation, as we might hope, but instead offers the hope of survival and maybe finding some meaningful quality of life, even in suffering. Others, like Renee Harrison, will agree with Williams but they then reject God's action here as being inadequate. Harrison says that Hagar's story leaves African-American women stuck in the wilderness of Hagar's experience, an experience that's latent with limited resources and suppressed agency in human wholeness. There's also, there's a poet and Bible teacher that I enjoy named Jackie Hill Perry, and she acknowledges in the midst of all of that uh, that this this text doesn't really feel satisfying if we're looking for freedom and thriving. But she also cautions against uh, importing our own experiences into the text over and against, against the voice of the text itself. Perry says, can we give Hagar the dignity to speak for her own experience, to guide us in how to understand God in this moment? He goes on to say, she, Hagar, doesn't respond with contempt. She doesn't even respond with confusion. She responds in praise. She says, you are God who sees. 
uh, Perry notes a few significant things that happen in this conversation between Hagar. Yeah. First, she talks to God. She sees God in some meaningful way and feels seen by God. That is a significant thing. There's only a few characters uh, in the Bible who really have this kind of special conversation with God. Um, she is a woman who is outside of even the family of Israel. She has no uh, power, so to speak, in, in the power structures of that time. And yet she has this really um, intimate conversation with God. God also gives her a promise parallel to Abraham's that her offspring will be too many to count. There's also significance to the prophecy that's spoken over Ishmael, that he will be a wild donkey of a man. Now, I initially read that and don't think of it as being a super positive thing, right? It sounds pretty negative. But you know what a wild donkey is not? Domesticated. Not enslaved. Free. Ishmael will not be a slave. Significantly, Abraham honors the name that Hagar hears. That means that Hagar went back to Abraham and Sarah, told them what happened, and Abraham listened to her and honored her testimony. And the name itself is significant. What does it say that name Ishmael means? Does anyone remember? God hears. God hears. Every single time Abraham or Sarah would hear or call out Ishmael's name, there's this reminder of what they have done. And the fact that God hears and is attentive to the suffering of Hagar. That might bring some pause to them and their behavior towards Hagar and Ishmael. Meanwhile, for Hagar, it's this reminder that God heard her and cares for her and her son. It isn't freedom, but it is more than survival. It's God's presence with her in the midst of the suffering. Perry goes on to point out in, uh, in the New Testament, in the Gospel of John, chapter 4, we find another woman in a wilderness place stopping to get some water who meets a man who reveals himself as God, and she ends up running back to town and saying, I have seen a man who told me everything I've ever done. She's basically saying, I've met Elroy, the God who sees. Sometimes in our moments of desperation, of trial, that truth can be enough to bolster us now, Hagar still has a trying life, and you can argue that it really only gets moderately better. She is eventually freed from slavery, albeit somewhat reluctantly. Chapter 21, when Isaac is finally born, Sarah decides that she doesn't want Hagar and Ishmael around, because she doesn't want Ishmael to inherit along with Isaac. So they send them off. They are free now, but homeless, with no resources whatsoever. They are in the desert wilderness once again on the brink of death and God once again comes to Hagar's aid in the wilderness. You could say the same maybe for the Samaritan woman as well. We don't hear much about her life afterward after this encounter. You might assume though that the trials of her life situation don't just immediately go away or get better or cured by being seen and known by Jesus. But Jesus 
saw her, the Messiah, saw her and showed compassion and made all the difference in the world for her hope in that situation. So what does this mean for us? What do we learn from Hagar's life with God? For one thing, we learn there may be times in which we identify more with Abraham and Sarah. And if and when this is the case, we do well to recognize that the deep pain, recognize the deep pain that our actions cause. And even if we feel justified because it's the convention of the day or because there's no other choice in our minds other than to act in this way, we can recognize that this causes harm and destruction in the world. Like Abraham and Sarah, our sins can be forgiven. God may still use us in his faithfulness, but we do well to remember that our sinful actions will have very real consequences for others, for ourselves, and for future generations. But we may also identify with Hagar when we are used and abused with no or little agency of our own. We learn that we are seen by God. We're valued. That although the journey towards freedom and healing may be long, that God will be with us each step of the way. God will hear. God will see. God will help us to endure, overcome. I think of that Martin Luther King Jr. quote, that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. So let us have hope. Let us hold on. Let us bring our pain to Jesus that we might be set free. I want to close by sharing uh, one of my all-time favorite lyrics uh, in a song. Uh, it's a song called You Are Mine by an artist named Carla Adolfi. And it has this interesting back and forth throughout the song between the verses and the chorus. The verses give voice to the Israelites as they are in the wilderness, experiencing doubt and bitterness in their hearts. But the chorus then rings out a response from God's perspective, offering hope and comfort. It goes like this. Maybe I don't have the strength. Maybe I don't have the faith. You brought me here in 40 years when I know this trip should take a week. I've been a child. I've been a slave. Oh, I've grown bitter and learned to pray. I packed my bags, I'm starting back. The cost was just too high to pay. In the chorus. When you walk through the water, I will be with you. When you pass through the river, the waves, they will not overtake you. And when you walk on the fire, the flames, they will not touch you. You are mine. Oh, you are mine. Our God is faithful and compassionate. The lowly, the burned out, the desolate, the hurting, and the doubters have nothing left. Do we believe that? God, sometimes... Sometimes all we really can muster up to do and say is remember even when our life situation is not. Hold on to that truth with hope. Sometimes not even completely sure that we 
know and agree, but, but proclaiming it and trusting it. Because no need to be good. Pray that in our own time of wilderness wandering and hurt and being broken down, that you would be for all others who are healthy. You would be there. Lord, we also pray that you might search us and know our hearts. Discover the ways in which we have turned our own hurt against others. Participated in actions directly and indirectly. Wounded. Oppressed. Hurt. Our brothers and sisters. We shall see that in grace, mercy, and in truth. We might own our actions before you as we move forward and faithful. Ever more seeking. The model of your faithfulness, your love. Would you help us to look more, more?